Welcome to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. This teaching is from the series, Poems, Prayers, and Promises, a look at a variety of psalms. The psalms are the prayers of God's people, encouraging and teaching us how to pray in our day. We hope this helps you understand and apply God's Word in your life today. And lament our complaints to, to or about God to God. And Psalm 88 is one of those. And in fact, uh, there are more prayers of lament in the book of Psalms than there are prayers of praise and thanksgiving. There are also whole books uh, in the Bible of lament, Job, Habakkuk, uh, and others. And, and normally, even in prayers of lament, uh, there's a note of praising God, uh, usually at the end of the psalm. But Psalm 88 is different. Psalm 88, uh, the psalmist feels completely shunned by God. There is no note of praise. In fact, the last word of the psalm is darkness. In the, in, in the NIV, it's uh, darkness is my only friend. But in the original Hebrew, the last word is darkness. My only friend is darkness. It's as though the writer is saying, God, you've abandoned me. And so darkness is a better friend to me than you are. At least in darkness, there's nothing. There's oblivion. And oblivion is more of a comfort to me than you are. Well, I believe Psalm 88 has a lot to teach us about our Christian life and about things like faith and hope and strength and redemption. But the lessons aren't cheery and upbeat always. Psalm 88 starts in a very, very dark valley. It takes us into this valley of almost impenetrable darkness. But if you hang in with me, I hope you'll see that we're going to make our way through the valley and, and, uh, and find a mountaintop where we can find rescue. And so this morning we're going to con consider this dark corner of the Bible and, and, and what it tells us about the four aspects of the Christian faith I just mentioned. Faith, hope, strength, and finally redemption or, or rescue. Faith, hope, strength, and rescue. So let's read Psalm 88. Listen now to the word of our Lord, our God. A song, a psalm of the sons of Korah, for the director of music, according to Mahalath Leonoth, a maskeel of Heman the Ezraite. So the author of Psalm 88 is identified as Heman the Ezraite. That's not Haman of Esther. Heman is a priest, and we'll talk more about Heman, but for now let's hear what the Holy Spirit has to tell us through Heman. Lord, you are the God who saves me. Day and night I cry out to you. May my prayer come before you. Turn your ear to my cry. I'm overwhelmed with troubles and my life draws near to death. I'm counted among those who go down to the pit. I'm like one without strength. I'm set apart with the dead like the slain who lie in the grave. Whom you remember no more who are cut off from your care. You have put me in the lowest pit in the darkest depths. Your wrath lies heavily on me. You've overwhelmed me with all your waves. You've taken from me my closest friends and have made me repulsive to them. I'm confined and cannot escape. My eyes are dim with grief. I call to you, Lord, every day. I spread out my hands to you. Do you show your wonders to the dead? Do their spirits rise up and praise you? Is your love declared in the grave? Your faithfulness and destruction? 
Are your wonders known in the place of darkness or your righteous deeds in the land of oblivion? But I cry to you for help, Lord. In the morning, my prayer comes before you. Why, Lord, do you reject me and hide your face from me? From my youth, I have suffered and been close to death. I have borne your terrors and am in despair. Your wrath has swept over me. Your terrors have destroyed me. All day long, they surround me like a flood. They have completely engulfed me. You have taken from me friend and neighbor. Darkness is my closest friend. So are you feeling good yet? <laughs> Darkness is my closest friend. In Jesus' name, amen. Is that any way to end a prayer to God? Can despair be praise? Let me ask you, can despair be worship? Well, Helman, Heman is in charge of leading worship in the temple. And as far as I can tell, this is the only psalm Heman gets. He gets one chance of writing a, a song of worship, and this is it. There's only one other psalm in the book of Psalms, by the way, that ends on kind of this bleak downer note. It's Psalm 39, and in Psalm 39 it closes with this. God, turn your gaze from me that I may smile before I depart to be no more. It's not, God, make your face to shine on me. It's turn your face away from me so I can smile and die. What kind of prayers are these? Are you allowed to pray these kinds of prayers? And what does these kinds of prayers say about your faith when you pray them? We're used to hearing sad songs on the radio, you know, doomed love, heartbreak, motorcycle crashes. Some days you just need to wallow in your misery. But can that be praise? Well, the worship leader of Israel seems to think so, and the Holy Spirit seems to think so because he inspired Heman to write Psalm 88. Despair can be praise, and despair can be worship, because despair can be prayed. What about faith? What does praying psalms of despair mean about your faith? Well, com commentators are quick to point out that, that Psalm 88 is directed to God. It's not complaining about God to others. That's grumbling. And grumbling is not helpful to, to you or to anyone else. When we grumble, we make ourselves bitter and we embitter others against us. But when we carry our troubles to God, the Savior, we leave open the, the chance for restoration. Maybe you've heard this thing called protest atheism. These are, these are people who, they, they claim that even if there is a God, God isn't worthy of worship because the world is founded on suffering. Babies dying from cancer, really? What kind of God creates a world where babies die from cancer? To the protest atheist, God has a lot of explaining to do. When you listen to the protest atheists, they're, they're a lot like the writer of Psalm 88, except that instead of addressing their psalm to God, they address their complaints about God to the world. They're great grumblers. But Psalm 88 teaches us that that we can put our worries, our suffering, our complaints into words and, and take them to God. Even our, even our anger, even our rage, even if we blame Him. Don't bottle up your anguish. Take it to God. If you have a complaint, take it to the management. But, when, but, but that's when despair becomes praise. What would Psalm 88 look like if we prayed it today? I'd like to read to you a, a letter written by 
uh, the late Mother Teresa of Calcutta. One of the things we learned after Mother Teresa's death was that uh, during the last 50 years or so of her life, she suffered from the idea that Jesus had completely abandoned her. She, she grieved that after appearing to her in a very real way and calling her to mission uh, to serve some of the most desperate people in the world, Jesus had not reappeared to her even one time in the last 50 years. In fact, over the years, she sought out a number of confessors and counselors she could talk to about her despair, and one of them suggested she write a letter to Jesus. She never intended for this letter to be published, by the way. She makes that plain, but shortly after her death, the Catholic Church decided that perhaps her struggles could help other people who were struggling, so they decided to include it in her official biography. And here's what she writes to Jesus. Lord, my God, who am I that you should forsake me, the child of your love, and now become as the most hated one, the one you have thrown away as unwanted, unloved. I call, I cling, I want, and there is no one to answer, no one on whom I can cling. No, no one. Even deep down there is nothing but emptiness and darkness. My God, how painful is this unknown pain? I have no faith. I dare not utter the words and thoughts that crowd in my heart and make me suffer untold agony. So many unanswered questions live within me. I'm afraid to uncover them because of the blasphemy. If there be God, please forgive me. When I tr try to raise my thoughts to heaven, there is such convicting emptiness that those very thoughts return like sharp knives and hurt my very soul. I am told God loves me, and yet the reality of darkness and coldness and emptiness is so great that nothing touches my soul. Did I make a mistake in surrendering blindly to the call of the Sacred Heart? That's what Mother Teresa writes, someone who is more faithful, more holy than most of us will ever be. And let me be clear, this was intended as an exercise where she wrote down her worst case fears and addressed them to Jesus. And as far as anyone knows, or as I can make out anyway, this was only one of two times she ever confessed doubt about her faith. Still, who would have thought that a woman who gave her life to show the love of Christ to the dispossessed and the, and the orphan, to, to battered women and, and, and victims of human trafficking, to the worst of the worst in one of the poorest cities on the planet, who constantly demonstrated such amazing faith, the saint of gutters, as she was called. Who would have thought she struggled so profoundly with feelings of being abandoned by God? She came to accept her loneliness and even embrace it. Years after the letter she, she wrote to Jesus that I just read, um, she wrote that she had come to believe that her feelings of Christ's absence in her life was actually an answer to her prayer that Jesus would allow her to participate in uh, the suffering of Christ, as Philippians 3.10 puts it. She wrote that her faith demanded she persevere in the, in the face of depression, and that by doing so, her faith might echo the faith of Christ. Malcolm Muggeridge was a, a great agnostic of the 1960s. He, he was a writer, a filmmaker, a, a leading spokesperson for the idea that God probably didn't exist, but even if he did, he wasn't all that involved in our affairs, and so we shouldn't 
uh, be involved with God. So Malcolm Muggridge visited Mother Teresa in Calcutta to interview her for a documentary he was doing. And in their conversations, he confessed to her that he had doubts about his own disbelief, his agnosticism. He wondered whether God might not be real after all. And here's what Mother Teresa wrote to him after his visit. This is what she wrote, even as she was experiencing with the writer of Psalm 88, feelings of intense rejection and abandonment. Dear Malcolm, your longing for God is so deep, and yet he keeps himself away from you. He must be forcing himself to do so because he loves you so much. The personal love Christ has for you is infinite. The small difficulty you have with his church is finite. Overcome the finite with the infinite. I wonder if she wasn't maybe reflecting a little bit on her own circumstances. The difficulty we have in this life is finite. Compared to eternity, it's small. But Christ's love is infinite and it lasts forever. To paraphrase Mother, to paraphrase Mother uh, Teresa's advice to Muggridge, we overcome the finite suffering in this life by focusing on the infinite love of Christ that we'll share with him for all eternity. Muggridge, by the way, he eventually took her advice uh, because a decade or so after interviewing Mother Teresa, he converted to Christianity and, and became one of the great 20th century apologists of the faith. Faith doesn't come from blind acceptance. It comes with wrestling with the difficult realities of the universe and wrestling with the ultimate reality of the universe, wrestling with God himself. Faith takes courage. Like Jacob, like Job, like Mother Teresa, we wrestle with God. We, we think, we reason, we question, we think hard thoughts, and, and we seek the word of truth. We don't exactly know what was going on with Heman that caused him to write Psalm 88? He, he doesn't tell us the details. And that's good because if he had included them, then we might not think psalm, this psalm was for us. If Heman complained about dying of cancer and that wasn't our problem, then we might not think that Psalm 88 had any relevance to our problem. But whatever your problem, if, if you're feeling alone and abandoned, if, if you're facing suffering and pain, if your heart is breaking and you're wondering where in the world God is, then this psalm is in the Bible for you. And if you're not going through any of that, give it some time, because almost certainly all of us will be. But you say, if I pray to God like that, does it mean I lack faith? Well, do you? Do you believe, or do you disbelieve? The Christian's answer to that question is yes. Mark 24 is the confession of all weak and failing Christians, which means you and me. They are the words of a father seeking deliverance for a son who is oppressed by an evil spirit. He tells Jesus, it has often thrown him into fire or water to kill him, but if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. If you can, said Jesus, everything is possible for one who believes. Immediately the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. That's the equation every Christian struggles with. I believe, help my unbelief. If you claim to be free of doubt, free of unbelief, then you're really claiming you're perfect because unbelief is at the heart of sin. Romans 14.23 says unbelief is the very essence of sin. Martin Luther said under every sin is the sin of idolatry. 
And under every act of idolatry is a disbelief in the gospel. When you dig down to the stubborn root of sin, what you'll find is the putrid and corrupted soil of unbelief. Faith isn't some abstract inner quality of belief. Faith is confessing my weaknesses, admitting my lack, and relying on Jesus Christ. And Psalm 88 teaches us that faith requires putting our voice to that need and expressing it. And so Hemans' prayer is directed to God. In the very first verse we read, Lord, you are the God who saves me. Day and night I cry out to you. May my prayer come before you. Turn your ear to my cry. That's faith. You are the God who saves me. That's Hemans' confession of faith. And when he says, may my prayer come before you, that's hope. He's saying, God, you're my only chance. You're my only hope. But the, psalm, the, the hope of Psalm 88 doesn't look like the hope we expect. That's because the Bible tells us the truth. It doesn't deny suffering or pain. It, it, it recognizes it and, it and it admits this world is corrupted and twisted. Sales managers uh, these days make an average salary of about $147,000. Uh, the average salary for a full-time pastor is about $60,000. Clearly, companies place a high value on people who sell things. A good sales rep can make even a bad product look good. They put the best possible spin on whatever they're selling. It, it will solve all your problems. It will make your life easier. It will get you a date every Friday night. <laughs> but what they're selling is gain without pain. And it seems like most of us in today's culture want to avoid pain at all costs. We have politicians and corporate bosses who signal virtue, but don't actually want to go to the, through the hard work and sacrifice of becoming virtuous. Our universities, rather than challenging students with hard ideas and difficult discussions, now have safe places where students who suffer microaggressions can cuddle puppies to relieve their, comfort, their discomfort. Sadly for underpaid pastors, the Bible isn't selling anything, especially not gain without pain. Karl Marx alleged that religion is the opium of the people, that it promotes a rosy depiction of God who keeps people complacent and ignorant of their suffering. And sometimes it's true that we try to anesthetize uh, ourselves and, and against the reality of suffering with the belief that God will only ever allow good things in our life. As far as I can tell, though, Karl Marx never read Psalm 88. The Bible doesn't shy away from the truth about the world that there is suffering and pain and heartache and despair. And sometimes it just happens and there's nothing we can do about it. And sometimes there is. Maybe many times the problem isn't me. I'm sorry. Many times the problem is me. And it's you. It's, the, it's human nature and the flaws of the human heart. But Marx's theories, Marx's theories didn't account for that fundamental reality. As a result, instead of paradise, his philosophy produced a hellscape of misery and suffering people could hardly ever imagine, not to mention the deaths of hundreds of millions of souls. So if anyone tells you the Bible's trying to sell you a, a saccharine existence with no pain and no suffering, point them to Psalm 88. And if they, if, if they try to convince you to follow some promise of paradise that denies the flaws of the human heart, then flee because they're the ones trying to sell you a false religion.
The Bible tells us our hope, our only hope, is in hearts made new by the grace and the love of Jesus Christ. When we respond to Christ's offer, we, we love, we live, we hope, as though we are immortal beings charged with making the world a better place. Because that's exactly what the Bible tells us we are, and tells us what we are to do. What about strength? How does Psalm 88 give us the strength to follow Christ? Self-help gurus and psychologists have built an empire around dealing with the fear of death. They say the worst thing is the fear of death. It's the source of all kinds of neuroses and pathologies. But there's something worse than the fear of death, and that's death. In verses 4 through 7, the psalmist says he feels like he's buried alive. In verse 4, he says he's counted among those who go down to the pit. In verse 5, he says, I'm set apart with the dead like the slain of the grave. In verse 7, he says he feels like he's drowning. He says, you have overwhelmed me with all your waves. You know, with physical death, the body dies once. But with mental anguish, your soul feels like it's constantly dying. The pain is unrelenting, and, and death itself comes minute by minute. On top of being buried alive and drowned, he says he feels utterly abandoned. In verse 8, he says, you've taken from me my closest friends and made me repulsive to them. We don't exactly know why, but, but he apparently is being shunned by his friends, and he blames God for that. And then in verse 18, he says, you've taken from me friend and neighbor. Darkness is my closest friend. Is there anything more painful than broken relationships? You know, the Bible isn't trying to sell you something. It's trying to tell you something, that God gets you. He gets, he gets you. He knows what you're like when you're desperate. He knows how you pray when you're desperate. Psalm 88 is the faithful prayer of a desperate Christian. And millions of people have been praying this psalm for thousands of years. So where's the strength come from to endure? Well, it's, in, it's when we're at our end that we're most likely to turn to Christ. It's in the belly of darkest despair that we can finally admit our lacking and, and trust Christ. And it's at those times when we are most receptive to his teaching. It's in the white-hot anguish that we are shaped and molded and, 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 and our character is refined. And it's when you realize that Christ is all you have that you finally come to see Christ is all you need. It's in the dark night of the soul that you, that you finally find the grace and the power of God to work a miracle. So is Heman finding Jesus in the midst of suffering? It doesn't seem like it, does it? Who is Heman? Here in verse 5, Heman writes that he is set apart with the dead, like the slain who God remembers no more, who is cut off from God's care. Is Heman right? Is he truly abandoned by God and cut off from his care? We learn a lot about Heman in Chronicles and, and 1 Kings. Heman was a, a priest. Specifically, he was Israel's worship leader. 1 Chronicles 25 says, Heman was exalted by the Lord and was given 14 sons and three daughters. It calls him wise and says he, was, he held a high post in the royal court of the king. He was the top advisor on spiritual issues. In 1 Chronicles 16, we learn that Heman was named as someone who gave thanks that the, Lord, the Lord's love endures forever. In 2 Chronicles, we hear that Heman was in charge of 120 other musicians. My point is that Heman was not cut off and abandoned. He, he was a blessed man. 
We don't know what caused him in such pain that he wrote Psalm 88, but we know this. God had not abandoned Heman. He used him. Just like with Mother Teresa, God used Heman in a way that was so powerful to his final day. And by including Psalm 88 in the Psalter, God is continuing to use Heman to speak to us. That doesn't mean Heman's despair wasn't real. But from everything we know about Heman, he grew in faith and strength and character and wisdom right up to his final days. And that kind of growth comes from doing the hard work, going through the crucible and, and trusting in God. That's where strength comes from. You know how to read your Old Testament, don't you? And you know that everything in here is really about Jesus Christ. All the heroes of the Old Testament, they're really just hazy, washed-out images of the only real hero. This is a, this is a book with one high, white hat and a whole bunch of black hats. It's all about Jesus Christ. In Luke 24, 44, Jesus says, Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. What was written about Jesus? In John 5, 39, he says, These are the very scriptures that testify about me. The law, the prophets, your, your favorite Bible story, they're all pointers to Jesus. Jesus is the better Abraham, the better Moses, the better Daniel, the better David, the better Ruth, the better Boaz. Jesus is the psalmist, the worship leader, the prayer, and the great high priest who sums up our despair and prays it back to God. There's only one person who could honestly pray Psalm 88. The psalmist, the psalmist says in verses 4 and 5, he feels buried alive. In verse 4 he says, I am counted among those who go down to the pit. In verse 5, I'm set apart with the dead like the slain who lie in the grave. Did Jesus feel buried alive? In Luke chapter 22, the night before Jesus died, he's alone in the Garden of Gethsemane. He kneels and he prays, Father, if you're willing, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. And then in verse 44, and being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. In Matthew chapter 26, 38, Jesus says to his disciples, my, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. He could be quoting Psalm 88.3, I'm overwhelmed with troubles, my, my life draws near to death. He's not saying I'm about to die and I'm, I'm sad about it. He's saying the sadness that overwhelms me could kill me. The sadness itself could kill me. And that prayer in Gethsemane, how does it end? He says, not my will, but yours be done. In the, in the end, only one person prays Psalm 88, because only one person can keep praying and living in perfect faith no matter how deep the darkness. He's the only one who can truly and honestly pray Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because he's the only one who was truly forsaken so that you and I don't have to be. And he's the only one who can pray, my only friend is darkness. His people reject him. His religion excommunicates him. His enemies torture and mock him. On the night he's arrested, his disciples scatter and abandon him. And then as the world rejects Christ and thrusts him towards heaven, the gates of heaven slam shut. Heaven turns black. And the only perfect and innocent person who has ever lived is rejected by his father. Psalm 88.7, your wrath lies heavily on me. 
You've overwhelmed me with all your waves. And that's our rescue, because Jesus doesn't just take on your sin. 2 Corinthians 5.21 tells us Jesus becomes sin, then suffers rejection by his Father, so, so you'll never have to. And this is important. God the Son takes God's forsakenness onto himself. God the Son doesn't just allow you to pray in your perceived forsakenness like him. And he actually takes God's forsakenness onto himself and prays your sense of forsakenness back to God. It's amazing, really. Is, is there anywhere you can get away from Jesus Christ? Not even when you feel forsaken by God, because Jesus is there. God the Son meets you in the very midst of your God-forsakenness. And there's these two amazing verses here in Psalm 88, verses 10 and 11, it says, Do you show your wonders to the dead? Do their spirits rise up and praise you? Is your love declared in the grave, your faithfulness and destruction? Psalm 88 doesn't answer those questions. Maybe Hemon didn't know the answer. He, he seems to be asking them with a certain irony, even an accusation against God, but you know the answer. Because we see the answer in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. God didn't leave Jesus in his forsakenness. Jesus conquered the pit. He leaves the grave. And he promises you and me that death does not have the final word. This life is only a shadow of the real, ultimate, true life to come. Does God show his wonders to the dead? And do their spirits rise up and praise him? Yes, Philippians 2.10. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Is his love declared in the grave, his faithfulness, even in destruction? Yes. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Friends, death and the pit have been defeated. Why? Why did he do it? Because that is what the great high priest does. He, he represents his people before God. And so our great high priest prays Psalm 88 for us. And he prays Psalm 22 and 39 and 42 and all the lament in the Bible. He takes it all down to the pit, through the valley and out the other side. And he's still praying. He's still praying for you in the midst of your suffering. You know the Me Too movement? It's girls and women who have been sexually assaulted and they say, Me Too. There's power in Me Too. If you're suffering addiction, you're not likely to find help down at the local pub. But you go to a meeting of others who are recovering too, and you say, me too. I've been in that pit. I know what you're going through. Me too. These pits can get pretty deep. I once worked with a woman who headed up a group called Parents of Murdered Children. And you want to talk about trauma. Well, I, I tell you, if you're in that group, you're in a pretty deep pit. What's our God like, the God of the Bible? What's he like? Does he just yell down from heaven, Get over it. Be grateful for all I've done for you. Is that God's response to your Psalm 88 prayers? I don't think so. He comes right down in the midst of our dark world. He descends into a pit deeper than any you and I could ever imagine. And he shares in our suffering and he says, me too. So what do you do with your despair? What do you do with your depression, your confusion, your hurt, your anger, your, your rage, your doubt? You pray it. You pray it. And if you can't put it in words, if you can't figure out a prayer you think God is willing to hear, then pull out your Bible and go to Psalm 88 and pray it. 
And as you pray it, make it your own. Add in your reasons for feeling abandoned, the specifics of your anger. Darkness is my only friend. In Jesus' name, amen. And if Psalm 88 isn't the right template, then find another psalm from Jesus' prayer book and make it your own. And remember that Jesus suffered all the forsakenness that infinite hell had to offer so that he could take your forsakenness to himself. So that even when you feel God forsaken, he is present, never forgetting you, never leaving you. There's nowhere you can go where Jesus isn't with you. We're going to come to the table, and as we do, I hope you'll take whatever anxiety or depression, pain, or worry and give it to God. Pray it. Feel the hope he offers. Not the phony hope of someone hawking gain without pain, but the real hope that knows your suffering, knows your heartache, and can meet you in the pit and can rescue you from it. Because here's the thing, when the darkness and the despair and the depression overwhelm you, only one thing will overwhelm them, and that's your response to the love of Jesus Christ. He wants to rescue you out of the despair. He wants you to know he loves you. He wants you to, to, to know that there's nothing that's going to keep him apart from you. He wants you to know that God gets the final word, not the sin you've committed, not the sin that's committed against you, not even death. He wants you to know that when you have no idea how to pray, he's praying for you. When you feel abandoned by God, he's lifting you up. When you feel broken, he's preparing you for something better. When you sin, he's already borne the wounds of your forgiveness. And when you die, he will meet you with open arms to welcome you and embrace you. He wants you to know he's your identity, he's your eternity, he's your ultimate reality, and that he is with you and for you and holds you to himself, and that he is never letting you go. The table is where we unite with our Lord. If you've confessed Jesus Christ, then you are welcome at this table. If you've not, then I'd ask you to not participate. This is a meal for believers. And if you have questions, then please see me or an elder after the service. We'd, we'd love to share with you how you can find faith and strength and hope and rescue in the loving arms of Jesus Christ. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you, that on the night he was betrayed, Jesus took bread, and after he'd given thanks, he broke it, saying, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for the forgiveness of sin. Whenever you do this, do it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. You can prepare the wafer. Um, we'll take it together after we pray. Father God, what an amazing God you are. Not like the gods of men's invention, 
You are a God who has given everything to pursue us and to love us. When we consider who you are and what you've done, we marvel at the sacrifice uh, you, Father, made for us when you allowed your son to be rejected. What can we possibly say to such a, a gift except thank you? Take and eat. Jesus, we are well aware that without broken body and shed blood, darkness and oblivion would be our closest friend. But Jesus, thanks only to you. We don't have to say that because you have given yourself up for us, for unbelieving, undeserving, too often unfaithful us. You are our Logos, our true word, in whom we place our faith, on whom we base our hope, from whom we gain our strength, and by whom we are rescued. Thank you, Jesus, for pursuing us into the pit of our misery and our suffering and for rescuing us from death, sin, and Satan. Take and drink. Holy Spirit, be with us this week and in the coming weeks, inspiring us and using us to be the people of God you want us to be. We are acutely aware that, aware that it is only your power that can make it so. And we ask you to be present with us, a comfort to us, an inspiration for us. Take the controls of our life and use them to do what you will. In Jesus' name. And now if you'd stand with me and receive the benediction, I'm going to do something a little different today. I'm not taking the blessing from the Bible, but from a writer and Bible commentator uh, named Max Lucado. May the history, may, I'm sorry, may the hero of all history talk personally to you. May you find in Jesus the answer to your deepest needs of life. May you remember your highest privilege. You are known by God and you are cherished by heaven. And now in the power of Christ, go forth blessed to be a blessing. Thank you for listening to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. For more teachings and resources, please visit www.brcc.church.